Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. The Aboriginal organisations in Victoria, they're not just health services. A lot of them have housing in their remits. A lot of them have aged care and uh, in the home and aged care residential, and the list goes on. Because we have that model of care and we know our community, we are best placed to be able to provide those services in prison and also planning for their release. That is vital. Culturally safe healthcare in the criminal justice system. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The provision of adequate medical care in the criminal justice system is an issue which has been raised during a number of recent coronial inquests. Because of this, the Aboriginal Legal Service of Victoria has been calling for the establishment of culturally safe healthcare services in prisons, citing allegations of racism and unconscious bias. But why would these changes be necessary? How would they prevent further deaths in custody and who is best placed to implement them? This was a central focus of a recent panel discussion involving CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, Auntie Jill Gallagher AO, CEO of Wenunga Nimitcha Aboriginal Health and Community Services, Julie Tongs, and Senior Fellow at Melbourne Law School's Indigenous Law and Justice Hub, Dr Amanda Porter. The conversation was facilitated by CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Narita White. In 1991, the Royal Commission on Drugs in Custody recommended that prison healthcare be of an equivalent standard to that available to the general public and should be accessible and appropriate to Aboriginal prisoners. But since then, we've seen over 520 Aboriginal deaths in custody. This can only mean a complete lack of action implementing those recommendations and an ignorance of health and wellbeing of our people. Before I go any further, I'd like to acknowledge Veronica Marie Nelson, a strong Gudijamara Nyoriyura Wiradjuri and Dajudajurong woman, whose story be the focus of a lot of our discussion today. We pay our deepest respect to Veronica's family, in particular Annie Donna Nelson and, of course, Uncle Percy Lovett, whose relentless advocacy during the Coral Inquest into Veronica's passing has led to statewide awareness of the inhumane treatment Veronica received and sparked discussion within Parliament about important legislative changes. In January 2020, Veronica Nelson passed away in her cell at the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre Prison, Veronica's Victoria's main women's prison, after days and days of crying out for help. During the 36 hours she spent at DPFC, she pressed into Kambabasa in her cell at least 49 times to ask for help and tell staff about her symptoms. Sadly, she passed away alone in her prison cell. Earlier this year, the coroner was incredibly critical of the standard of prison health care and found that poor quality of health care contributed to Veronica's passing. The coroner also criticised lack of culturally safe or appropriate care in prison. This led to the Victorian government announcing that health care in Jane Phillips Frost Centre will soon be delivered by public health care providers. This is excellent news. But we also need public health care in all of Victoria's prisons. This shouldn't just be limited to Phyllis Frost. And we need Aboriginal organisations delivering care for Aboriginal people in prison if we are to stem the cycle of Aboriginal death in custody. 
Today, we're incredibly lucky to be joined by an amazing panel of Aboriginal women, experts in the area of Aboriginal health and prison and police accountability, to talk more about these issues and how we can implement them. I mean, Jill, Megan Williams spoke about cultural safety and cultural competency in prison healthcare. What role can ATROs play in providing culturally safe healthcare in Victoria's prisons? Thanks, Narita. Well, what role? Well, I believe, and Vacho's been saying this for 20 years, Narita. I mean, here in Victoria, it's now a new company that has got the government contract to deliver healthcare to all prisons and all prisoners in Victoria, and it's, I think it's GEO. Many years ago, it used to be Pacific Shore Health, and I think they're all American-based companies and they're private providers, so you often wonder about what drives a private provider, whether it is care or whether it is the um, uh, the dollar sign. So that's an issue. But here in Victoria, a lot of our ACOs are more than well-placed to provide those services to Aboriginal people in prisons. And for a number of reasons, we don't have to do a research project to find out who needs our services. We know that who are the vulnerable families in our communities. And we know when people are in prison and we know the families suffer also. So the Aboriginal organisations in Victoria, they're not just health services, Narita, as you would know. They provide an Aboriginal health service, but they also provide mental health. They also provide drug and alcohol counselling, A lot of them have housing in their remits. A lot of them have aged care and uh, in the home and aged care residential. And the list goes on. Because we have that model of care and we know our community, we are best placed to be able to provide those services in prison and also planning for their release. That is vital because then the services that they receive whilst incarcerated will continue once they're exited the prison. So I think the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Sector is better placed. But can I say, there is a risk here, Narita, that we need to be mindful of. Back when Pacific Shore Health had the private gig here in Victoria all those years ago, they contacted Vacho and they asked Vacho whether our services would provide these services alongside their service model or integrated into their service model. And I said, of course, our services would be happy to explore what that would look like and what that would cost. But then the Pacific Shore Health said, oh, no, we've got no money. We've got no funding for this. Oh. And I said, well, how do you expect an already stretched Aboriginal community-controlled health organisation to be able to deliver those services on top of without any additional resources. And it's always been well known we are best placed to do that. So, and that not only because we know our community and we know the people that are actually in prison, we know their families, but it's because our services, you've got culture embedded throughout So culture is a very important protective factor in delivering health services. No private provider can do that or even understand that. So I'm just hoping the recent review here in Victoria that was released by the government, 
I'm just hoping, Narita, that the government will take it serious and start to look at developing an implementation plan for all the recommendations. So thank you. And until since you mentioned the review, and I know it's a little bit cheeky, but I just wondered if you could talk about the review because I know it's 888 pages, so not a lot of people would have had the chance to read it all yet, but maybe you could just give us a summary version of, you know, what were the main themes that really came out of that review process and what are the recommendations that you feel are an urgent priority and what ones actually will take more time? Basically, to just for those people who don't know, but I personally have been involved in the past, I don't know, 18 months has it been, 18 months, two years, in the state government commissioned a review into the culture of adult correctional services. So we just need to put that. So for the past 18 months, we've been going into prisons, talking to Aboriginal prisoners, talking to all prisoners talking to staff and a whole raft of things. But I won't go too much about the history there. And a lot of things we heard, a lot of the things that we were exposed to uh, is highlighted in the report. So some of the recommendations, uh, and some of them, are, uh, as you said, Narita, are very uh, easy to implement. And I've just had the time just today to skim over the government response to the reports, and they've said they've started a lot already. For example, one of our recommendations in the report that in Victoria, there should be a public health model implemented in all prisons in Victoria. That was a very high recommendation and it could be so simple to implement. We already have public health systems here in Victoria, right across the continent we have. So, But the government have decided to implement it into two prisons currently, two women's prisons, and that's Dame Phyllis and Tarangawa, which is a low-security prison uh, rural Victoria. So a public health model. What I don't know, Narita, is how are they going to engage the relevant Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations to also be in there at the same time. That's what I don't know. And that's what I'm currently trying to find out. So that's one of the recommendations. The other recommendation is, and it's not just focusing on health, so a public health model for primary health care, mental health and drug and alcohol. That was the uh, recommendation. The other one is that the legislation needs to be changed to have a more of a rehabilitation focus so that sets the scene as to how prisons operate. At the moment, it's all law and order and, you know, keep the community safe type of focus. Uh, and that probably stems back from early colonisation, you know, the early days when we were penal colonies. Yeah, one of the other recommendations is training for all correctional staff should not just be eight weeks and should not just have a focus on law and order. Um, it should also have a focus on rehabilitation um, and also um, case management. Um, so some of the issues in prisons uh, here in Victoria are, you know, the correctional staff really don't talk much or vice versa to the health staff. Um, so that integration needs to happen. So all everyone's on the same page. And so eight weeks of training is what correctional staff are offered here in Victoria. 
uh, that's not good enough. So um, we think that's important. Also, from an Aboriginal perspective, we wanted to see an Aboriginal uh, inspectorate, so an independent Aboriginal inspectorate of some sort that sits within um, the current, what do you call it, the current inspectors' roles, inspectorates, yeah, yeah. Um, because as we all know, when when the tragic death of Veronica happened, the current organisation, I think it's called JARO, went in and basically went in to do and find out, well, what happens, um, like they do with any death, and it basically said, and I'm not, not quoting exactly, but it's basically said, look, not a lot to see here. And so that's a bit disappointing when we now know there was a lot to see. Um, so that Aboriginal inspectorate is going to be independent of government. It has to be. That's really important. Uh, and there's a few more, like, for example, Narita, when you look at the Aboriginal staff that are employed within corrections, they're all very junior positions. So there's no one there that has a lot of influence um, at a higher level within correctional, uh, correctional services or individual prisons. So one of our recommendations was trying to address that. There needs to be more senior Aboriginal people employed. And, of course, really good cultural safety training mandated in all prisons. Um, yeah, I, I'm still working my way through the report, Anigel. I hope to finish it over the weekend. Um, but it has been great to see some of the things that um, we as an organisation have been pushing for quite some time, like independent investigation into Aboriginal deaths in custody um, and particularly around cultural change, which we know is a problem. And, I mean, certainly from my reading so far, the report doesn't go this far, but the privatisation of prisons is a real problem, not just in this state. We see it um, nationally, we see it internationally. Um, they are driven by profits, not by outcomes, and you see that in the way they shirk um, their responsibility for the care and control of people that um, they have absolute control over. There is no way that you can leave that joint um, unless you're paroled. Um, it's exactly it's right, you know, and when you look at what happened to Veronica... Narita, you know, I mean, I heard uh, Megan uh, and that talk earlier uh, and Megan talking about, you know, there was not even clinical care there. There was no clinical standards met there. There's really been no ramifications really that I am aware of um, because that, you know, maybe part of the recommendation should also be to include humanity as a course um, because she was denied her humanity. Yes, I couldn't agree more with you. And we know that in the past we've seen where certainly matters have been referred to the OPP, um, no charges resulting, the most um, recent being Tanya Day. We know certainly now we're waiting for a decision on Veronica Nelson. And as we speak, you know, the inquest into the death of Michael Suckling is going on and that also concerns prison health as well as other elements of prison operations. And we've got many more to come this year and that's a sad fact. A lot of the time there's a lot of discussion around culturally safe healthcare provision. From a service perspective, Julie, I'm wondering if you can expand on what, what that actually is. What is culturally safe healthcare? How do you deliver it? And what are some of the outcomes that you see? 
here in Victoria. One of the biggest problems when our people exit prison is there's not a great deal of planning or, or referral pathways. Of course, that reoffending is going to happen if they can't get a job. Of course, that reoffending is going to happen if they can't get anywhere to live. So they need to be tapped into these services that can assist them with that. I remember when I was the Treaty Commissioner, I also went into every prison in Victoria as the Treaty Commissioner. And there was one Aboriginal man down in Gippsland Prison, Gunai Kurnai country. And he was probably about my age. And he, he said to me, he said, Jill, I keep coming back to prison because I've got nowhere else to go. No one's going to give me a job because I've got a record. And so soon as they exit me, I do another minor crime, petty theft, and I come back into prison because I have a bed and I have a feed. Now, they're two fundamental things in life people need to have access to if they're going to thrive, apart from health too. It's all, it all encompasses that health. So our organisations can do that. They can help with that because they've already got housing stock. It doesn't mean they can just put them into a house, but it's that networking with the services out there. I know there was one of our organisations that had some resources to build like a type of a hostel. It's only for the purpose, if needed, we can place people in there for short-term or to medium-term accommodation. And then, of course, our services can also help our people look for work, you know, get a CV together. The basics that people need to be able to navigate the world that we live in today. I couldn't agree with you more, Julie. We need to stop locking away our problems. Often we punish those who find themselves in an unfortunate position because we don't deliver services effectively or the required responses. And that for me is horrific and unfair. Just want to move to some of the questions now. So uh, one of the questions is just around Truth Light Pilot that you uh, mentioned, Annie Jill. I don't know, when, that is that, when is that scheduled to commence and what can ACOs do to ensure their workforce is ready to take on the responsibility of delivering these services into prisons? I'm not sure where the government would call them pilots. That's my language. Um, but the two sites that have now transitioned to a public health model, which is Tarangara and... Dame Phyllis. Dame Phyllis. Thank you, Dame Phyllis. I had a blank there, a mental blank. <laughs> Dame Phyllis. As far as I'm aware, those two sites are not in the current government contract with GEO. So they currently have a contract with, is it Barwon Health? Yes. For Dame Phyllis, I just can't remember the other one for Tarangawa. They are a public health model and I'm assuming, and this is where we need to probably, if any of the department are listening, they might be able to clarify for us, Narita. I'm assuming that includes mental health and drug and alcohol, not just primary health. Okay, so that's really important. Uh, really important because in the, when, when we did the review, it wasn't just primary health that we got issues with, it was mental health also and access to drug and alcohol services. So I'm assuming that's what they've done, but as I said, they haven't kept the review panel informed. But as the CEO of VATCHO, I'm just about to embark on writing a letter to 
to the bureaucracy, the Department of Justice here in Victoria, to see whether we can get an update, a written update on where we're at with those two sites. I was aware, Narita, that with Barwon Health, there were discussions with Wutherong Co-op to see how they can. And Julie, I take note with your model, you are a standalone model because you didn't standalone model. You're not integrated into the mainstream model because there was a risk there that you spoke to me about months ago that if you're integrated with the mainstream model, because we do it differently, as you know, we wanted to be able to deliver our model of service, not mainstream model of service. So that's a really important point. So I don't know uh, how government are going to be engaging with the Aboriginal community controlled health sector, Narita, and that's something that I'm now right and seeking advice on. That's good to hear because certainly I understand that the discussions between Western Health, which is the chosen provider for DPSA, and Wallerong are ongoing, but that is at the mercy of, of Western Health. Um, it, it's it's not part, um, the contractual arrangements aren't favourable. Um, and we know, I think, Tarangawa, I know that BDAC are also involved in discussions about how to support Delkaya in that service delivery, but I think it really is important that, you know, ATROs really look to be standalone service delivery so you can control all the elements. We know certainly from the Royal Commission into Mental Health, you know, when it comes to implementation of those in prisons, it's been pretty poor. We saw last year the coroner's court that said that we had an increase of 75% suicide and self-harm and over 80% of those had been involved in the justice system within the last 72 hours. So that means either they've been arrested in police custody or were imprisoned and then released. Those are horrifying statistics and show that mental health really has to be a focus area. Certainly from the 35 people that we see arrested each and every day, mental health is identified as an issue for all of those. So all of those um, who are listening, not just to take up the fight in relation to physical health, um, but holistic health, which includes mental health and social emotional wellbeing, but most importantly too, connection to culture. Um, we know that culture is a strength and a protective factor, as you mentioned so often, and in Jill, and you alluded to um, Julie in your statement. Next question, and there are a lot here, so I'm going to have to tail them down, but Many of those coming through are saying that they're really concerned about the increase of Aboriginal women who are incarcerated and they really want to know how do you provide an adequate support model for those women who are leaving prison um, to ensure they do have that holistic service delivery because they do then see apparently poor health, relapse and death as a direct result of trauma and abuse that's been experienced whilst in prison. If the Aboriginal community controlled health sector, uh, the Aboriginal community controlled sector, not just health, so the VATJO membership, if they're engaged in this space to provide not only the primary health care, also um, the, uh, what's a, you know, a planning when, when a prisoner, and in this case a, an Aboriginal woman, is ready to leave prison, there should be a whole planning process. I would say a few months before. It's due to it that they are due to get out of prison. And that wraparound services that the ACOs here in Victoria can provide is what is needed. So they can look at, um, you know, whether um, whether they need a place to stay or whether they need 
to be tapped into employment or education, further training or whatever the case may be, there needs to be those wraparound services when someone is about to leave. But how do you stop the increase of Aboriginal or women, but Aboriginal women in this case, of uh, going into prison? That's a bigger question and it's going to take more than a, a two-second answer. But I, I think um, governments have got to s switch the flip. They've got to flip the switch. I said that backwards yeah. then. Flip the switch. They've got to flip the switch to think about, you know, because otherwise, Narita, in, in 10, 20, 30 years' time, we're building more prisons. That's CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, Auntie Jill Gallagher, AO. Joining her in conversation was CEO of Wenunga Nimitcha Aboriginal Health and Community Services, Julie Tongs, and Senior Fellow at Melbourne Law School's Indigenous Law and Justice Hub, Dr Amanda Porter. They were speaking at a recent forum hosted by the Aboriginal Legal Service of Victoria and facilitated by CEO Nera Tawait. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories too. The Songlines Project talks to our connectedness across country and it has brought together some leading educators, researchers and thinkers. One of those is Michael Brogan and he'll join me shortly. Right now though, some music from Arunta singer-songwriter Dan Sultan. Let me 
This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Songlines of Country is an oral history and multimedia project that tracks three significant songlines, including the Creation Spirit and the Seven Sisters and their travelling roots. This culturally important major research project is being led by Dr. Lorena Barker, a senior lecturer at the University of New England. Michael Brogan is also involved with the Songlines of Country project with a long history of working in the education sector. Michael has lifelong engagement in community work and with the local land council at Armadale. Michael, welcome to Speaking Out. Hi, how are you going? Thank you for having me. I wonder if we could start before delving into where your life's taken you, if you could maybe <laughs> share with us where you grew up and, and, and who around you or what was it that, you know, shaped your worldview and your sense of yourself? I was adopted. So I've been living and growing up in mainstream pretty much all my life. I haven't lived and worked on country, especially in my mother's country, which is Kigari, Fraser Island. So I grew up in cities here in Australia and around the world. I spent most of my formative years growing up in London. We returned to Australia in the late 70s. And in many ways, my interaction and engagement with Aboriginal community was limited. But in many ways, my encounters with Aboriginal people and culture was primarily through media, films, texts. But of course, once I left school, I started to engage with Aboriginal people. It's not to say that they weren't around, it's just that they weren't part of the social environments in which I grew up. It's interesting and unusual journey in a lot of ways that you've had where you were overseas for such a period of time and then have come back, but you're so closely connected to the community now. What was that journey back home and back to the community and back to that part of, of yourself like? Well, when I finished my first degree in uh, visual and performing arts, I moved back to Sydney and I had started work at Film Australia where I did a one-year cadetship. I produced a program for schools and the National Education Program in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and culture. I worked with a fellow colleague, Errol Sibisato from WA. So we were both kind of out of university, we were both trainees in an environment where government films became an encounter with Aboriginal people and culture. And in many ways, it also exposed us to kind of a colonial narrative of the way in which mainstream society and culture viewed Aboriginal people and culture as well. So from that experience, I think it is that producing a program for a national education program or for schools and education gave us a real insight to understanding uh, what that was all about in terms of giving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people a voice in the many films that we viewed in the year that we made that program. It was during that time that I was also approached to taking a job at the Eora Centre in Sydney to work as a photographer, filmmaker and artist and to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students. Bearing in mind that up until that point, it was important for me to understand what my past was in relation to my mother, dare I say, my birth mother. So I made contact with her three days before I started work at the Eora Centre. 
we hadn't met in the whole time that I'd been adopted, right through to the day that I got the job at the Aura Centre. So it was about bringing my past into the present, but recognising that it was important to understand who my family was, what our history was, and what that might mean for the many students that I was going to be teaching through that educational facility. I worked there for about 10 years. When I returned to Australia, uh, for me, my first day at Eora was a cultural shock to me, uh, both personally and professionally, as I had uh, previously stated. My interaction and engagement with Aboriginal people face-to-face was limited. So my first day at Eora was very much the beginnings of a, a kind of jarring between myself and the students that I worked with in the years that I was at the Eora Centre. So fascinating to hear about all of these threads of your life, really. I'm going to come back to that time at Eora, but I guess I was interested to know from you, you've obviously been very drawn to creative practice and storytelling and that space that you mentioned that you were interested in, the space for other people to tell their stories. But obviously teaching and education are also a very important project for you in a way. Eora brings those together, the work that you did there in that creative space, but teaching people how to how to enter that space and, and use their own creativity. And I wonder if you've had any reflections on why those two things have been so important to you. I suppose living and growing up in the mainstream and, of course, moving and travelling in relation to my parents' personal and professional growth in those sectors. The educational sector is something that I don't think I've ever really been away from. I think it is that sort of my experiences of recognising what my own parents did working in that environment as teachers and as academics kind of influenced the path I eventually took myself. So I kind of recognised my own experiences in relation to being a student being a teacher, being an academic, and now a researcher. So that you could say there are kind of phases in relation to my professional life, as well as my life world of living and growing up as an Aboriginal person in the mainstream. So my encounters with students in relation to the setting in which we were working, interacting and engaged in relation to the art processes, was about uncovering, revealing, exploring our life worlds and kind of acknowledging too that for many students that I worked with, the education system had failed them. However, the processes that we worked with enabled them to build and construct as well as give expression to their own voice, their own worldview and their experiences of living and growing up Aboriginal in Australia. And I suppose that was also the difference between ourselves. My experiences of growing up in London, of course, is quite different to the experiences of many of the kids growing up, say, in Redfern or growing up in Armidale, which is where I now live. So I suppose that our discussions or the talks that we had between ourselves was trying to get an idea and a sense of who each other were. And that was very important to be a good teacher. It's about being able to enable your students to recognise who you are, as well as keeping it real. 
recognising that our lives may be very different, but we have an opportunity to work together to learn and understand diversity within the worlds in which we live, both as Aboriginal people, professionals, as well as individuals working in an educational environment to give them an opportunity to see their world through their own strengths. Art, music, theatre kind of relate to original knowledge systems that had been in operation for over 60,000 years. So we were kind of working from strengths there in terms of being able to give students an opportunity to find that voice through the creative process. It strikes me listening to you that there's a process of working with people to find that voice, to appreciate that diversity is is a ways in which we are reweaving our social fabric as a community. And of course, that is a big part of the work that you're doing with the Songlines of Country Project too. What's been your reflection on how culture is being regenerated? Well, working with Lorena, of course, being invited to come on board as a researcher on that project. But more importantly, Lorena and I have been working in the same institution for a long period of time. We come from different backgrounds. But I suppose that um, for me, working on this particular project, as working uh, at the University of New England, for example, I'm only as effective having listened to my students. They keep it real for me in in the sense that it's from their worldview, from their stories, their experiences that allow me to effectively navigate as well as uh, operate both within the educational space and, and the community with which we work. Most of the people that we are currently working with are primarily Lorena's relations. So I suppose that my interaction and engagement with them has come from the experiences of working in educational settings like Eora, as well as the University of New England, where most of the work that I was doing was kind of focused on open access programs. So we were meeting and talking with many students that were coming back into the educational system to improve, if not upskill themselves, to be able to do further studies. That way, I think it is that through that engagement, the work that I do on the Song Nines project comes from having, in many ways, learned from my students to be an effective listener as well as an effective operator in terms of meeting the needs of the communities in which I'm working with. Strikes me you've had quite a long time to, I guess, observe <laughs> the educational space. And I just wonder what your reflections are, especially sort of from the time at Eora and the sorts of backgrounds and issues and barriers that your students there would have had. And now in the tertiary sector space, you mentioned that, you know, there's still a process of students adjusting or having to work with them to find their way through. But what's your reflection in terms of what you've seen that has been the positive changes and what are still some of the barriers in this space? I think one of the things that is quite obvious that when meeting and working with many of the students I have in the years that I've been located within the educational field or the educational setting 
or the institutions in which I'm working, kind of reveal we're having conversations they've never had before. And when a student turns around and sort of no one's ever talked to me like that, no one's ever enabled me to speak, I'm always being told what to do or what's in my best interests. So opening a door or possibly opening a window for the first time. I think it is that when many of the students that I've worked with talk about previous educational experiences, they talk about being the invisible kid in the classroom, that their interaction and engagement um, with the teachers was limited, or it may simply be that many teachers in the uh, years that they were at school didn't really know how to interact and engage with the realities of the situation and the circumstances in which they were growing up. And I mean that in the, in the sense that we're now talking about what it is to be living and working off country. And in many ways that becomes a concept to understanding of dispossession or that dislocation, this idea that Aboriginal kids themselves uh, are no longer seen or perceived to having any culture at all, when in fact, regardless of your situation and circumstances, it is that saying to students, you are culture, and to remind them culture is fluid, just as it is to understand what has occurred over the last 230 years of European occupation here in Australia. When you look at those conversations, what you're needing to connect your students with, your involvement with the Songlines of Country project, there's a way in which you're bringing culture up from country and actually engaging members of the Aboriginal community in research outside of the walls of the institution. From your perspective, what are the things that you hope a project like this will achieve? What ground is it breaking and what do you hope the legacy will be? Well, I suppose that in many ways that the role and function I have within the project is knowing that I am comfortable in the institutions in which we bring community in to look at the archives or in many ways visit places like the Australian Museum, the State Library in South Australia, I suppose the Museum in um, South Australia as well. One might say that living and growing up in the mainstream, it is that I am a product of the institutions in which I have been educated myself. So I suppose that in some ways that is important in terms of making the communities that we're working with comfortable about being in those environments. But I think more significantly, conversations that we're having is recognising that Aboriginal history and the evidence of that history goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And we have encountered that evidence. We have seen that evidence and that evidence is still part of many of the stories that are told by many of the people that we work with. So that connection to the past is relative to the connection we have to country because the events that have occurred in those places are the ones that tell us about ourselves, our history and our past. And it's not broken. There are just disruptions it's recognising that 
listening is important to understanding their objectives and why they're doing that, this work, as well as the invitation to be invited to work on this project as well. Just feel that there's so much in what you do that is about how to strengthen the community and I think everyone who works in the education space is sort of working towards better outcomes for our people in a myriad of ways. But there's something particularly about the things that you've focused on and the way that you engage as an educator that really does reflect heavily on the concept of truth-telling. And at this moment where we're talking about voice, treaty and truth, I wonder if you could share with us what your views are on the importance of a truth-telling process. I think it's about trying to bring together two narratives, two worldviews that continuously seem to be in conflict. We've got two views of Australia's history. We've got the First Australians or First Nations people. It's similar the world over for those countries that have colonial histories. Truth-telling is recognising that, one, to understand what that truth is, you've got to hear it. You've got to hear what's being said. If it comes from an older generation of people whose experiences tell us what that was like, it's important that this may be the only opportunity that we have because a lot of the stuff that they talk about is not written, but it's shared as well as handed down through successive generations about the experiences of an older generation who have either been moved off country, located on missions and reserves, living and growing up on welfare, and so on and so on and so on, at the hands of governments and the many policies that they've worked on, reworked, continue to rework in relation to what they consider to be in the best interests of Aboriginal people. We often hear many Aboriginal people say they're not listening and I think it is that this is the right time. Statement from the heart, it is an opportunity to hear for the first time the worldviews of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. There's no place for me. There's no place for me. 
That's the show for this week. Join us again next week for more stories from across Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Marissa Berend. Thank you.